Trains have been an important engine for projecting military forces for more than 170 years. Their ability to quickly transport unprecedented quantities of troops and supplies over vast inland distances revolutionized tactics for armies that had previously relied on horses. Rail transport played a major role in the Civil War and in both World Wars. And despite modern transportation advancements, trains remain a superior method for moving heavy equipment to far-flung inland locations. A single train can pull dozens of military vehicles from Humvees to 70-ton Abrams tanks to locations hundreds of miles away. A 2021 report by the Government Accountability Office noted that during contingencies, the Army moves about two-thirds of its unit equipment by rail from its fort or base of origin to a shipping port. However, moving armored vehicles by rail outside of the United States presents a logistical challenge. Not only must the theater of operations have sufficient rail lines, but it must also have rail yard facilities with specialized equipment such as cranes or concrete ramps that can get the tanks onto and off of the rail cars. Positioning an armored combat brigade in a remote outpost not located near such a rail yard requires moving the vehicles by train to the closest off-low location and then driving them to their final destination many miles away. Furthermore, the powerful capabilities trains offer the military also make them targets during conflict. An adversary can thwart a substantial transport merely by sabotaging a rail line or wiping out a rail yard. When a train is stranded on damaged tracks, the tanks it carries are in limbo. Responding to this capability gap, Burdick developed the Rapidly Available Interface for Transloading, or rail, a ramp system that can be conveniently transported anywhere it is needed allowing heavy military vehicles to be easily offloaded without the need for a permanent rail yard. Rail provides flexibility to offload armored vehicles anywhere along a rail line in order to keep an enemy guessing. If a train were to be incapacitated along its journey, the system would still allow its cargo to be offloaded. The rail system can also be used at a fixed rail yard facility as an additional offload point to enable increased throughput. Burdick developed the system in collaboration with the Combat Capabilities Development Command Ground Vehicle Systems Center, or GVSC. By rapidly adapting technology the two organizations had previously developed together for offloading battle tanks at damaged seaport facilities. Leveraging the two Army labs' expertise in military bridging, structural engineering, and military rail operations, Rail will provide greater operational flexibility to quickly transport armored vehicles where they are most needed. I'm Megan Saxton, and with Chris Kiefer, this is The Power of Arctic. Our guest today is Justin Strickler, Chief of the Engineering Systems and Materials Division at Arctic's Geotechnical and Structures Laboratory. We will talk with Justin about how the rail system will enable more agile power projection for the U.S. and Allied forces. Justin, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Let's start by talking about trains. How important are trains to a modernized U.S. force? Yeah, good question. And so, you know, when most people think about trains, you know, trains are technology that's been around for a while, right? Yeah. Uh, and I equate trains are the, the land version of boats. Boats have been around for a long time, but trains are vital to the logistics chain that makes the U.S. military work. And so being able to move massive amounts of goods in our case you know we mostly focus on combat power mm -hmm. moving that long distances is critical so yeah trains 
kind of an antiquated technology, critically important to enabling a, a modernized U.S. force. You said an analogy the other day when you made the comparison of boats. It was, I mean, you'll have to help me get it right, but if you need to move things, what, by 10? Yeah, 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 yeah. So what I often say is, you know, people are like, uh, trains, right? They kind of sneer at it. You know, but if you want to move ones of something, right, you can move it on an airplane. You got C-17s and C-5s. You can move one or two tanks. If you want to move tens of some things, you can do it on a truck. But if you want to move hundreds of more or something, you need a train or a boat. And when you get hundreds of things in an area, then you have real combat power. One tank is nice. And if I only had one, I'd go with it. Yeah. But having hundreds of tanks and hundreds of Bradleys, that's what really gives you combat power. Yeah. What is rail and why does it matter? Rail is the rapidly available interface for transloading. That's kind of a mouthful, I know. But in order to get any program funded, you know you have to have a good acronym. So that's what we came (laughs) up with. Rail is, it's a modular expedient ramp system. And so what it allows you to do is build a ramp that's capable of handling an M1A1 load. So roughly 75 tons of weight and being able to load that on a train. Train has a raised elevated deck. And so in order to get a tank up there, you got to be able to get up there. And what's kind of unique about the way or the rail system, I guess, is it doesn't require any fixed facilities or fixed logistics. Mm -hmm. The way they do train operations now, if you want to load a tank on a rail car, you either have to have a crane and you have to have a fixed facility. Mm -hmm. You have a concrete ramp. You know, you're tied to a certain space and time. And the cranes that you need to pick up a 175,000 pound tank are pretty big, right? Right, And there's not a ton of them in the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so they're tied to specific locations in time and space. But with the rail system, right, and with an expedient ramp, you kind of have the option or ability to load a rail car anywhere in the world that you happen to find yourself, uh, which can be useful. Yeah, so you mentioned the current method, of course, having to have a fixed facility. How much does that current practice right now limit military mobility? I mean, how do you get tanks right now, you know, in far-flung places? You got to have a fixed facility at the point where you're loading them and at the point where you're unloading them. Sometimes the point where you want to unload them and build that combat power isn't necessarily the point uh, Mm -hmm. where you want to employ them. And so having the ability to kind of choose the time and place where you unload a tank and build that combat power, you know, that's a unique advantage that the rail system gives you. It adds some flexibility. If you're a logistics planner, or you're a targeteer, right? And you're looking at how do I stop this thing? Well, you know, it's got to go from point A to point B. You take out one of those and, and you take away capability. So we're adding a capability and a flexibility back to a commander's toolkit. Say, hey, look, here's a system that allows you to choose the time and the place of how you build combat power. And not only combat power, I always say combat power because usually we're talking about tanks, but you know, sustain a force, right? The long pull in the tent is usually building combat power and sustaining it. That's what stops an advance faster than anything. Sure. And so I guess you mentioned the, the scenario where you can take out the tracks and then all of a sudden you can't get the tanks where they need to be. Prior to rail, those tanks, you blow up the tracks, the train stopped, you can't get the tanks off of them. They're just stuck there. Yeah. We've gone out and we've observed logistics operations across the continent. And, and specifically, mm-hmm. we're talking about the UCOM theater. UCOM mean, meaning Europe. Yeah, Euro- European Command. And so if they're moving these trains or equipment, right, they'll move them to a fixed facility. And when they get there, you know, they've done a whole lot of prep work. They've got these cranes staged and it looks real good and it's real fluid, you know, and they're kind of very dusting away some of the practicality of if this is a real thing, how yeah. would you do this? And so, you know, just understanding what it takes to be able to do these kind of things is one of the unique advantages that we kind of had, mm-hmm. right? right? Mm-hmm. Kind of insider mm-hmm. training. 
Uh, you know, we went and talked to transportation commands who are responsible for moving these massive amounts of goods and tanks and understand the problem set, you know, down at the granular level, right? Yeah. What, what are the real problems that you can't overcome? And would something like this help you? Yeah, sure. So going back again, that scenario, now the track is destroyed, the train's stuck, but you can get the yeah. armored vehicles off. Absolutely. Yeah. So the rail system is capable of being airdropped, right? So you can kick it out of the back of a plane or you can sling load it in or you can just put it on the last rail car, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, you know, so it's right carry there. it with you everywhere yeah. you go. Yeah, it's sure, like, it's sure. like, you know, carrying it in your backpack. Having that capability, if you do run into a case where you need to unload your, your rail car, right? You now have a capability. You're not waiting for hours or days to get a crane to you or and you don't have to turn the train around and go back, mm-hmm, right? Right. You've said, too, that this can also help at that fixed facility um, Absolutely. get, get you know, more uh, throughput and whatnot. Yeah, and if things are leaving the U.S., they're leaving the U.S. on a ship, and they're going to a port somewhere. And in UCOM, European Command, they arrive at a couple of different ports, right? And at those ports, they have an, a limited amount of throughput that they can get through mm-hmm. because they're a fixed facility, right? In normal cases, that's fine, right? The capacity of these shipping facilities is meets the demand. But when you need to surge capacity and you need to meet a demand signal that you didn't necessarily anticipate, right? Having this modular ramp that you can drop in to boost on a temporary basis the capacity of that Mm -hmm. facility, that's critically important. Looking at the Ukraine-Russia scenario that we have going on right now, uh, you know, a lot of lessons learned are coming back from that. And, And one of them is how do you surge capacity very quickly? Yeah. You've mentioned before too, and I don't know how big of a deal this is, but right now, again, if you have dozens of abrams on a train you've got to load them and unload them from the back of the train is the only way correct yeah this could allow you to get if you need tank a that's in the middle of the train you can get to it is that is that significant yeah so the the rail system is configurable in three different configurations and so i guess i should go back and kind of talk about the system yeah in terms of components and what it is it's nothing fancy it's steel beams and aluminum deck panels that you can configure big Lego box. That's what it is. And so you can set it up on the end of the rail car and make a simple ramp. You can set it up along the side of the rail car and you can side load, which is typically not done. Mm -hmm. It's not a capacity or capability that any other system allows. But what's unique about that or why is that important? That's what you're asking, right? Exactly. Well, in a first in last off scenario, if you want to get the first tank off that you load, you got to unload everything behind it. Well, what we've seen in the field is Sometimes tanks don't want to crank up and move, right? Okay. And you got a deadlined vehicle. And that one deadlined vehicle keeps everything else from being able to come off the train. Yeah. Because you can't move it. And pulling a tank that's deadlined is a that in and of itself is difficult. So having the ability to put a ramp alongside anywhere on the rail line, right, lets you bypass sure. that deadlined vehicle sure. and continue to offload. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the unique things about it. I don't know if we'd use that in every case and scenario. But it's something that's unique and nice to have. Yeah, sure. It gives you another ca- an added capability. Yeah. Walk us through how we got to this point. Was there something specific that led to the development of rail? The components of rail is a, a follow-on or an additive to an, another program that came before. And that was the peer overdecking system, which uses these same parts of components for overbridging. Mm-hmm. And it, while we were looking at those parts and pieces at a demo, one of the researchers at GSL, he's a retired Army colonel, he was looking at it. And he said, you know what? I bet we could unload a rail car with those things. Wow. <laughs> and we were like, yeah, probably. But why would we need to do that, right? That was the obvious question. Yeah, Surely yeah. something like this exists. You know, so we came back to the office and we did a little digging and there was no capability. There's no modular 
rail ramp capability that can handle the loads we're talking about. And so we uh, reached out to Transcom, who is a huge sponsor of a lot of our work in GSL. And Transcom, U.S. Transportation U.S. Command. Transportation Command. They have an RDT&E program focused on deployment and distribution. RDT&E, that's Research, Development, Testing, and Evaluation. Correct. We reached out to them and put in a proposal and said, hey, we, they, they were the previous sponsor of the other work. Said we'd like to you know, reconfigure this, these components into a rail ramp system. And so they funded it in 2019. That was when we kicked off this work. It was a follow-on in terms of the components, but a completely new capability that we were able to get out of the same components. And this this was developed in response to a need in Europe. What was unique about Europe that made this a bigger need there? Yeah, so Europe is a contiguous landmass, mm-hmm. which is fortunate if you want to move things around by train. Indo-PACOM, right, the tyranny of distance is the water. In UCOM, there is no tyranny of distance. You're all connected. And so there's a massive rail network that you can rely on to move goods and ship equipment around, around the theater. And so UCOM wanted to take advantage of this ready-made logistics network. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, mass and combat power and moving things, right? Rail gives you the ability to do that very rapidly and very cost-effectively. And so UCOM uh, uh, reached out to us and asked, do we have some kind of capability in this area. And it was fortuitous, luck, whatever you want to call it, happenstance that we had started this Transcom project the, the year prior. So yeah, we, we do have a capability for that, and they were very interested in it. Yeah. And so we scheduled uh, a time to go over and do a demo in March of 2020 with them. I think it was six months after the program started. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't recall what happened in March of 2020, <laughs> COVID hit. <laughs> You know, which pushed things back a little ways and travel restrictions and all that. But the thing that really brought us to the forefront and going to uh, UConn was the hostilities that kicked off in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And so that took priority. And we were able to get over it and do a a full-scale demo and show the capabilities of the system and then leave leave behind two prototype units for them to use. And they have been using them ever since. Sure. Obviously, big need in Europe. Are, Are there other places this is also needed? Yeah, and so I, I briefly mentioned Indo-PACOM. You know, uh, it encompasses the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. Indo-PACOM, when many people look at that battle space, that geography, that area of responsibility, it's the Pacific Ocean, which is the largest you know body of water on Earth. Right. But within Indo-PACOM, the Korean Peninsula exists, and India exists, right. and India has the most miles of track per capita in the world. And they move a billion people around on their trains, right? Very vast rail network system. And the same is in Korea. So getting there is half of the battle, right? You got to be able to get there. But being able to move within the theater, being able to maneuver within the theater is just as important. So the 8th TSC Theater uh, Sustainment Command is the Indo-PACOM Sustainment Command. And the 7th TSC is the European Sustainment Command. Both those commands have reached out to us about acquiring the systems and getting them forward deployed, you know, so they have that capability uh, when they need it. You mentioned kind of a little bit surprised as you started looking into this that such a capability didn't already exist. Trains obviously have been used by the U.S. military since the Civil War. Right. Is some of this, I guess, that the military has been actively focused in recent years, Iraq, Afghanistan, those are areas that you know, I, I guess I would imagine don't have as much rail capacity. And so is that kind of why now as focus shifts and whatnot, rail becomes a more important player? And, and that's kind of what led to the need for this now? Yeah. I mean, it's it's not 
quick to build a rail line, right? And right. so places like Afghanistan and Iraq, they didn't have as developed of an infrastructure when it came to rail lines. And the population centers are pretty dispersed and the need for rail wasn't really there. So there was no rail infrastructure. Much different in Europe and the Korean Peninsula and India uh, and even in Russia. That is the primary mode of transportation in many of these places. The focus uh, in Iraq, right, was, you know, they had massive log trains of 18-wheeler trucks. I I was there. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, right. I saw them. And the same in Afghanistan, right? Very dispersed locations, not a ton of infrastructure. I mean, the road networks were terrible, mm-hmm. uh, and there's no rail to speak of. You know, now that we're kind of shifting back away from less developed countries, sure. you know, rail is once again a high priority item. Can you talk a little about the system's capabilities? I'm assuming there are different configurations. Can this be transported easily? Can it be set up easily? Yeah, so we designed it to be expeditious and expedient in its setup. And so it's parts and pieces that can be packed down into a a Bicon container. A Bicon is a 10-foot container, regular Mm -hmm. shipping container. So everything you need comes in a 10-foot container for intermodal, multimodal transportation, which the military likes. You get it on site, and then you open it up, and then all of the parts and pieces are hand-carryable. So a six-man carries the most people you would need to carry any individual component, which is nice because, you know, if you're in a remote, austere location, but you got to have a 50-ton crane, or, you mm-hmm. know, or a huge piece of uh, MHE, uh, material handling mm-hmm. equipment, then it's not much use. But you can always find a couple soldiers laying around. Yeah, sure, sure. sure. <laughs> you can put them to work. Yeah, that was something that was really important to us uh, when we were doing the development to make sure that uh, you could build it by hand. You didn't need MHE because the last thing that you want to do, you know, when you're on a, a work site is be looking for that one tool that you can't find and that right. holds everything else up. And so everything you need to build the, the system comes in the kit. You just need 12 to 16 soldiers to put it together. Yeah, sure. Yeah. The kit's configurable. We talked earlier about the side ramp configuration. Right. We also have an end ramp configuration. And then we have a turning pad. Basically, instead of an end ramp, you get a square that you can turn on and go down a ramp, uh, which may not sound like very useful. Like, why would you need to turn? But uh, when you get into a rail yard, or in some cases, right, you need to go over something. So I have the ability to pivot off and come across, you know, an obstacle or whatever. We haven't found a huge need for it, but why not, right? Got it, sure. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, got, you got sure. it, why not? What about in terms of capabilities, too? You mentioned that this came from the original parts from the pure overdecking system. Um, I know you've talked before, this kind of gives you, it gives you the parts for three different systems in one, that being what you can overbridge, underclass bridges, yep. you can fix a broken pier, you can unload from a train. Is there value in having that flexibility? Could that pay off that you've got these pieces and you can use them for various needs? Yeah, I kind of akin the system to like a, a Gerber or a Swiss Army yeah, knife. Right, right, right. If you set it up in one configuration, it's a straight blade. If you set it up in another configuration, you got a serrated blade. Sure. Or I think the most useful thing on a Swiss Army knife is the toothpick. You know, and <laughs> right. so, I mean, having that flexibility, it just gives you more options to solve a problem. We often spend a lot of time solving one little problem, right? You know, but if you can solve many problems with one thing, uh, it adds to the resilience of the system. And anytime you're adding resilience to the system, I'm talking about the logistics network and system as a whole, Mm -hmm. it makes your outcomes better. So having a tool that adds resiliency throughout the entire logistics network, you know, is a huge benefit. Not only does it cut down on training, if you know how to put 
the system together for this configuration. It's the same for this configuration. It's the same for this configuration. So now you're cutting down on your training of your soldiers. If you can do this, you can do this, and you can do this, right? Your components are the same. There's a, a decrease or an increase in the readiness mm-hmm. level by decreasing the amount of inputs you need. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Has there been interest in this system from other allied nations? Yeah, so when we were able to go over to Germany and do our demonstration, some of our NATO partner allied countries were able to come over and participate with this. And I think our NATO allies are certainly seeing the value of having U.S. weapon systems. Poland just signed an agreement to buy a fairly large amount of M1A1 tanks. Mm-hmm. And they've, you know, they have interest in being able to employ and meet the standards that the U.S. has. You know, so our allies and our NATO partners specifically understand the importance of interoperability. If everybody's doing their own thing their own way, yeah, it's great right. for them, but it doesn't add a lot of resiliency right, throughout the right. network. And so our allied partners and nations, they want our combat power, right? And they see the importance of that. And they also want all of those enabling things that make that combat power effective. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the collaboration with the Ground Vehicle System Center or the GVSC? Yeah. So GVSC. They're a DEVCOM component uh, lab, and they've been absolutely critical for this. And you know, when we started the original peer JCTD, which was uh, the program which Pods was developed mm-hmm. under, we brought GVSC in because they're responsible for bridging within the Army. And while this isn't a bridge necessarily, right, yeah. it is a bridge and function. Sure. And they have a lot of expertise in designing bridges, and they understand a lot of the finer details about what it takes to build a bridge. Mm-hmm. And so you're leaning on their expertise for the design aspects, some of the requirements aspects has been critical to this partnership. They're a wonderful yeah. partner. And this is continuing to build on other things in the future, right? So we'll continue to partner with them uh, as we move forward. And then I mentioned Transcom earlier, mm-hmm. but um, you know, without them funding this effort, we would not have had a prototype to deliver to UCOM when they ask. So the foresight of Transcom to kind of fund this RDT and effort uh, was huge and being able to have a capability that we could push forward when the need arose. Sure. Are there other partners as well? Primarily uh, GVSC. We've partnered with ATEC, Test and Evaluation Center, to make sure it meets all the safety requirements and you know soldiers can put their hands on it. Uh, but from a development standpoint, it, it's been mostly GVSC sure. and ERDIC. What about, is there any collaboration with other Erdic labs as well? Or is this pretty much contained in GSL? Yeah, it's pretty much a GSL-focused effort. You know, when we were doing the peer pod stuff, there was collaboration with CHL on on port infrastructure and those kind of things. But this has primarily been a a GSL effort. Yeah, sure. And you mentioned pods, the peer overdecking system. Rail emerged from that technology. Can you talk a little bit about pods and the capabilities there? Yeah, so... Pods uh, was uh, a critical enabler for the peer JCTD. So the peer JCTD was the port. JCTD, joint, joint, joint technology capability. Joint capability technology demonstration. And peer he was not kidding about the acronym. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, peer was also an acronym. Port improvement via exigent <laughs> repair. Yeah. So the peer JCTD, that's an OSD funded uh, effort. Defense. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Dang, I'm good at acronyms. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of acronyms. Uh, uh, OSD, Office of Secretary of Defense, and U.S. Transcom funded that mm-hmm. RDT and E effort. Uh, that was a five year effort. And the peer overdecking system was one line of effort, one spiral is what we called them mm-hmm. uh, within that JCTD. The focus of that JCTD was to rehabilitate a peer as quickly as possible. And usually when you're doing 
work on a pier or a wharf, it requires a lot of diving. And diving and doing repair work takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And so the purpose of the pier overdecking system was to go over the damaged stuff. It's a lot easier to work on the top side when you don't have to splash divers. And so the pier overdecking system, it's capable of overdecking unsupported length, capable of holding an M1A1. And so the overdecking system was kind of really critical in understanding or, or delivering a capability to rapidly repair a pier. Yeah. So you've got this technology, you've got pods, as you said, kind of the idea came up, hey, I wonder if we can use it for unloading a rail car. Um, you talked a little bit about this. I think one of the impressive things about this effort was how quickly it all came together from that idea. Can you kind of talk about the timeline you are able to work on? It was a, a three-year RDT&E project right at the tail end of that. We're finishing it up this fiscal year, but we got it approved in FY19, uh, and we started in FY20. As I mentioned earlier, COVID hit, but we were ready to go for a demonstration in March of FY20. Technically, the program started in October of 2019. Really, six months later, we yeah, had a workable wow. prototype, and we did do some demonstrations with that prototype. The thing that really enabled us to be able to deliver as fast as we did was we kept the same team that we had in place working on pods and mm-hmm. pier, mm-hmm. right? And so we were all on the same page, and we had all spent the last four and a half years working together. And so there, there wasn't none of that learning curve of yeah. what are you doing, what are we doing, you know, how do we mesh together, you know, what's the goal that we're trying to get to, how are we going to do that? We all understood right from the beginning, mm-hmm. and we all had great working relationships together. And when you have a team, right, you're not going to ever deliver anything by yourself, right? And so when you have a team, yeah. right, and everybody's on the same page with a shared vision, you can rapidly deliver something. And that, that's really what, sure. it, what gave us that ability. Where were we all able to test and demonstrate this? One of the unique capabilities that we have here at Erdic and, and GSL is our strong floor. And so analytically, computationally, mm-hmm. you know, using a FEA model, we knew that our systems would perform at the levels we wanted them to. But before anybody puts a tank across it, right, and endangers somebody's life, they yeah. want to see that system tested. Yep. And so uh, we used our strong floor and uh, some of our engineers and technicians over at SMB, Structural Mechanics Branch, to do full-scale live load testing. Yeah, for people who haven't seen it, can you kind of paint a picture of the strong floor? And what yeah, it can so do? the strong floor, we call it the strong floor. It's a two-foot-thick reinforced concrete floor, and then we have, I think they have four different actuators that can load up to a, a million pounds. And so, you know, a a big, huge piston that they can set to run different intervals, hold different loads for for different amount of time. And, you know, all those things are critical to making sure that the system is going to perform how you want it to. Mm -hmm. So we were able to do component level testing. So each individual component and system levels testing uh, to prove out that capability. It was tedious, right? It's a lot of a lot of work for a few squiggly lines. That's how it comes out. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, but it's critical to understanding how the system is going to perform. I had a guy come over and video a test one time, and like he was just staring his camera at a beam, and it never moved. And we're like, all right, we're done. He's like, nothing happened. We're like, I know, that's what we want. It's not exciting at all. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> if you hear a crack or a pop, something went very wrong. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Once we were able to prove out at the system level that the system could hold our loads, you know, then we were ready to move on to, to live dynamic load in mm. this case an m1a1 so we worked with anderson army depot you know they have a rail yard uh and they're responsible for 
the inventory of tanks mm-hmm. uh, in the U.S. military. So we set up an agreement with them. They're very gracious hosts, and we worked with the uh, 757th IRC, which is the Expeditionary Rail Center okay. uh, Reserve Unit. Uh, they provided the bodies. Anson provided the venue, and we were able to go over there, set up the system in all three configurations, uh, and then use uh, a real M1A1 to drive up and down it uh, multiple times to sh- you know yeah. show like, hey, yeah, we. This is a fairy tale, right? This is a real capability yeah. that's ready to go. So that was important. And then you said you all demonstrated it in Europe too. Yeah, and, and I'm sure I, you learned yeah, from that. Yeah, after that, they wanted it in theater to be able to to move stuff around the battle space. Uh, and so we went over in May, I think May of 21. Sure. In, invasion, I think it was February, May of 21. We were over there setting it up, training. This was in Germany, correct? Yeah, Germany. Yeah. We trained a company of transportation soldiers on how to set up the system, Mm -hmm. various configurations, capabilities, and they employed it. We watched them, trained them, and now they have it and they use it. Sure. And y'all been able to make, I think you said before, y'all been able to make adjustments based on some of the things you've seen. Yeah, so one of the really important things is the system is height adjustable, which allows you to account for uneven terrain, Mm -hmm. right? You don't have Mm -hmm. to do a lot of ground prep. And it allows you to accommodate for different rail heights. And one of the unique things about it is, since it is height adjustable and it's a ramp, we were also able to load 18-wheelers with it, right? So okay. flatbed 18-wheeler okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. could back up to it, too. And if it's too low or too high, right, it's a big screw, basically. You can adjust the height up and down. And all these feedback. So the original system that we built didn't have carrying handles. The original system we built was kind of fixed in height. Mm-hmm, uh, the mm-hmm. original system we built, you know, had some uh, flaws when it came to being able to put it together, right? Fit and form and function. And putting it in the hands of the soldier, right? And letting them train on it and play around with it and then give us feedback. They're like, hey, this would be cool if we could carry it by hand. It would be cool if it could go up and down. Yeah. So we didn't have to do all this prep work. It'd be cool if these things fit together in this way. Mm-hmm. And being able to take all their feedback and go back and work with our designers, the guys at GVSC, to take all that feedback in, uh, that was important, right? And so every time we would give a different iteration to the soldiers, they would be like, oh yeah, we love these improvements, but what about this? Yeah, right? What about yeah. this? And so we've, we're ending our RDT&E program right now. All the feedback we've gotten from soldiers, we've got it to about as good a place as we can get it right sure. now. And so we're going into production. And so seven of these systems are currently being fabricated by the manufacturer, and then they're going to get sent overseas. And so we, we have a patent on the technology. Mm-hmm. We have a patent on pods. We have a patent on rail. The manufacturer licensed that through Erdic Works, and now we're in full-scale production. So kind of a nice ending. Yeah, sweet. Erdic has a long history in force projection. How has this effort leveraged that expertise? I think... You know, when you think back over what Erdic has done in the past from a force projection standpoint and the technologies and the systems we've delivered and knowledge products, a lot of that comes back to the understanding we have of the battle space and what capabilities that the engineers, the regiment needs to have and able to deliver and able the commander's intent. And so having that touch point with the engineer schoolhouse, with the techs, the reserve units, mm-hmm. with the logistician community, that gives you a deeper understanding of a problem set. And I think what one of the good things that we've done here is to embed ourselves with a warfighter and encourage that feedback loop. And it's really only if and when you understand a problem can you deliver a solution. And so every time we do a force projection project, one of the most important things that we do is go out and get that soldier feedback on the front end. 
you know, we talk about stakeholders and we usually talk about stakeholders from the perspective of funding, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, who's paying for this? And that's important, right? We definitely need to engage those guys. But probably what's most important, uh, you know, are the guys and gals who are going to be using this, right? They're ultimately the stakeholders. And if you make a product and it's only great in the lab, can never transition, you're never delivering a capability to the Mm -hmm. warfighter. Nobody wants to be in that situation, right? We all want our technologies to end up in the hands of a warfighter. And I think that relationship we have is what allows us to be very successful on the force projection and force protection sure. standpoint. And in terms of that, you mentioned being embedded with the warfighters and understanding the warfighters' needs. Talk about your background. I mean, you bring that, you know, perspective as well. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, 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 was, I spent a little bit of time in the yeah. Marine Corps and deployed and understanding just because you get a technology doesn't necessarily mean you get a capability. It's got to be useful. Uh, you got to want to use it. It's got to make your job in your life better and easier and simpler. Having a technology for the sake of saying you have a technology it isn't very useful. And so I always try to think back to my days in the Marine Corps and handing something off to one of my Marines, right? Is this thing going to make his life easier? Is it going to make their day better? And if the answer is yes, mm-hmm. in my mind, right, then it's, it's something we should pursue. Tell us more, kind of that background, just kind of how you came to be involved to Arctic and, and as part of this project. What led you here? Yeah, uh, luck. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I was, I was getting out of the Marine Corps. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to, do, wanted to do, and I got a phone call from a recruiter, James Henry. He asked me if I wanted to be an engineer. I have an engineering degree from the Naval Academy. And I said, yeah, I do want to be an engineer. And he said, well, do you have any interest in living in Mississippi? Because at the yeah. time I was, I was living uh, um, up in Virginia, okay. uh, Marine Corps Base, Quantico. Yeah. yeah. And I said, well, I'm from Mississippi. He's like, oh, you're the perfect guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, for me, it was like coming back home, right? Um, no idea Erdic even existed. I'd heard of the Corps of Engineers, yeah, but sure. no idea Erdic existed. And here I am, I don't know, how many years is this? Nine years later. Yeah, wow. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Kind of fortuitous. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. You talked a little bit about patents and production. What is next for y'all? Having the patent is important, right? Because it allows us to kind of experiment with the system in, in new ways uh, and not worry about necessarily having a, a ton of competitors. And it also get, you know protects the government right from having to buy back its own stuff. And so we've talked about how we've used it for overdecking uh, up here. Now we're talking about using it for rail. The Marine Corps has interest in using it as an expeditionary bridge. And so uh, later next month, I'll be meeting with representative from the Marine Corps to talk about how we can package this up and how we can use these same sets of components just for a new thing, which is pretty cool for us. Every time we, we talk to somebody about it, we tell somebody about it or they see it, right? That's, that's really the selling point. When they see it and how simple it is, they say, what about this? Can we do that? So far, we've never said no to anybody, yeah. right? So if you got an idea of what you can do with some steel beams and some aluminum decking, let us know. We'll, we'll give it a shot. And if you want to contact Justin, you can find his email address in the show notes. Uh, Justin, thanks so much. This was a great discussion and just really an awesome piece of technology. I mean, the idea you all had and just seeing all the impact it's had and, and, and the uses and whatnot like you talked about and seeing what's ahead. So thanks for joining us and talking about it. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. By making it easier to get armored vehicles to austere locations, the rail system will allow U.S. and allied forces to adapt operational plans and will enable greater freedom of maneuver. Designed with the future in mind, rail will accommodate the heavier tanks and military vehicles that are anticipated in the years ahead. This makes the system particularly valuable, as do its flexible configurations. 
rails components can be assembled to restore damaged piers, unload rail cars, or bolster underclass bridges. This gives commanders one system with three distinct capabilities. The Power of Arctic podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Follow Arctic on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Arctic podcast in all major podcast players. Visit powerofarcticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofarcticpodcast at usace.army.mil. That's all for today. We'll see you next time.